I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. Hello there, I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and I'm going to be answering questions from new believers today in the Tuesday live stream, and I'm just grateful for you guys to join me. I'll be taking your questions from the live chat. Now, if you're watching this after the fact, if you're watching post-stream, you, um, at least if it's the next day after the stream, you will have timestamps in the video description of every question and when it was asked so you could just jump right to what you want. So if you want to watch the whole video, you can or just focus on the questions that you're interested in. Uh, but you guys can begin piling in those questions now and I've already got some actually. And um, what we're going to do is focus on new believers questions. And now that can be because you're a new Christian or it could be because you're an old Christian and you feel like you got some new believer questions. You know, there's things that you just don't know, even though you've been uh, a Christian for a long time. That's the focus for today's stream. I want to keep it very centered on that. Questions from Christians who are new believers. One day I'll do uh, some other types of question and answer videos like a, a uh, video, uh, just questions from atheists or questions from non-Christians. I should probably put it that way. I'll do that kind of stuff in the future. But today, new believers. So um, the first question I've got here is Marine Girl who says, can a wife or mom um, or single mom have a job outside the house? Um, absolutely. Um, there, this is, this is actually not even, uh, biblically, this is really easy to answer. So let me, let me just take you to an actual text of scripture. I have to line this up a little bit better right now. My, uh, my, um, my software is a little bit janky because the way I did it here. So what I'm going to do is take you guys to Proverbs because the book of Proverbs, we actually have a passage that gives us an old Testament example of this. Um, Proverbs, uh, 31, actually, let me see. Um, Okay, listen to this. This is a proverb. So it's, it speaks sort of poetically, you know, about the, the idea of, um, of, a, of a godly woman, of a really wonderful godly woman. She's spoken of in a poetic sense here. And this is what it says about her. I'm sorry, my, my, uh, my stuff's not lined up well. I, I didn't do that well today. But let me see. Maybe I can... No, no, no. Okay, just give me a few seconds. I meant to make sure this was working better before. But I didn't. Um... Okay, so let's take you now to the passage again, Proverbs 31. This is about the woman, uh, the, the, the godly woman, the, the wonderful woman, the kind of girl the guy wants to look for when he gets married. That's the idea, Proverbs 31. Um, so it says, um, an excellent wife who can find, she's far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax. She works with willing hands. She's, she's working with willing hands, um, but there's more details. She's like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. And with the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. What is this? She, she purchases property and plants a vineyard. So she has a small business or perhaps a big business in the case of Proverbs 31 woman. She has a business. Here, this is Old Testament women. The Bible actually is pretty on board with women's liberation <laughs> um, in a godly sense and not in a sense where we demolish the differences between men and women or we, we can actually hurt things that way. But there is a biblical way of doing it. And um, yeah, she dresses herself with strength and makes her arm strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hand to the distaff and her hands hold the spindle. She, and it, she opens her hand to the poor. So she's just a big blessing and, and encourages and takes care of other people. Um, then check this out. There's even more details. She makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchant. So she's not just knitting clothes for her family. She's actually buying and selling for a profit with different merchants right? The, there's, there's, um, uh, there's a lot of good stuff in here. Uh, Proverbs 31 woman, uh, obviously she's like the ideal, this ideal woman whom we don't perhaps normally see <laughs> in our, in our lives, but there she is. Can a, can a woman have a job outside the house? Um, yes, absolutely. That's a biblical thing. And I know some think that it's violating some sort of, uh, gender standards that the Bible is placed in order for a woman to have a job outside the house? I don't think so. It's a different question. Uh, what role should parents in general have in raising their kids versus sending them to school or paying others to watch them? That kind of thing. I'm not even weighing in on that. I'm just saying that's a separate question as, as to the question of uh, a woman working. Uh, next question is uh, from Andrew Stone. He says, is profanity ever acceptable? For example, if you were to say, I blinking love you, man. 
not in anger. Um, the Bible study had some debate last week. Okay, a study he's in had, had a debate on the topic. Thank you for your teachings and love of God, sir. Um, is profanity ever acceptable? I'm going to give you a simple answer and then I'm going to give you a longer answer. My simple answer, uh, Andrew, would be no. Uh, it's, it's just, it's not acceptable. Um, that would be my short answer. Uh, my long answer is going to be, it, it ends up being a little bit complicated, especially being where we live in like a global community now and words that are profane in one culture are not profane in another culture. And we have to start having sensitivities to people who were raised in a different environment than us. And so um, let me... Um, uh, let me see if I can find the text of scripture I'm thinking of to share with you here. Um, and then I'll bring it up on your guys' screen. And, oh yes, the cat cam. Just because you ask. <laughs> this is my cat. This is Moxie. Just, uh, oh, there she is. Oh, she doesn't want to be on camera at the moment. At any rate... There she is. There's her rear end. She just wants to show you her most flattering part. Okay, so anyways, that's my cat. Just because I like my cat. And some of you like my cat too. All right, this is the passage in Ephesians 4.29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth is a pretty strict policy for Christians to have. I do think it's a real policy that we should in in incorporate so that my, my language is not corrupt. I recognize that where the tongue goes, the heart goes, um, that the tongue gets me into trouble. The things I say get me into trouble. They cause all manner of, of harm. James 3 says that it's a, a little spark that causes a huge wildfire, a forest fire. And so the tongue, it's like a world of iniquity and it causes, basically it causes fires when we speak bad words or foul words. Now this isn't primarily talking about cuss words, profanity. But it includes profanity. And my understanding is that corrupting talk would be words that have been corrupted by our culture so that they become cuss words. The words themselves are so corrupted that they, they carry this connotation of profanity or any phrase that falls in line with that same flavor of thing. So that a Christian, we can condemn things. We could say something's evil, something's bad, something's right, something's wrong. But we guard our tongues so that we can honor Christ with every thing we say. And this is one of the biggest battles Christians have. And it does concern me as a Christian who's looking at Christians I see around me that they have set the bar so low for purity in their speech. And I'm just being honest. Christians have set the bar so pathetically low for, for uh, purity and Christ honoring in their speech that they have no convictions when it comes to uh, things like profanity. Now, that being said, a profane word in one culture may not be profane in another culture. And so someone could say something and I'm like offended as an American because in our culture that word is bad. Whereas in another culture, it's not even a profane word. And so that creates com complexity as we're interacting with people in different cultures. Um, but yeah, if it's a profane word, don't say it. That would be a good rule of thumb, I believe. Um, so let's uh, take the next question. We've got Eric Hamilton who says, Hey Mike, can you talk about the relationship between following the word um, commandments and faith. Um, it sounds like maybe the relationship between obedience and faith. Um, I'm not, maybe Eric, you could elaborate on that question if I have a chance to come back to this, uh, because I'm not sure about what was in your mind in the question you're asking, but my, just off the top of my head, my thought is that, um, our obedience to God flows from our faith and we're saved by faith and we're saved unto obedience, obedience. And when I follow Jesus in my life, it is, it is a result of the transformation God does in my life. I'm not saved by my works. I'm saved by his, his kindness and grace. I'm saved as I am, a lost sinner saved by the grace and love of Christ, saved by his sacrifice for me. And um, my faith is put in him. And now because I really believe it, you will see me live it out. You will see me live out my faith because if you truly believe this stuff, you're going to be walking in it. Um, that would be a, a short answer that probably you have more questions about, I imagine. Um, R.C. Gunnels says, What purpose does prayer serve for an all-powerful God? How do we affect anyone or anything with prayer? Um, uh, well, let me let me start. There's this is I'm really glad you asked this question, R.C., uh, because first, this question comes up a lot 
with especially newer believers, um, questions about prayer and why why am I praying? I'm not understanding the purpose of prayer. And I'll say one of the problems is when we primarily see prayer as a way of um, us getting what we want, if that's the primary function of prayer, I pray to get what I want, then we, we enter into perhaps an unhealthy relationship with God and we get confused when we don't get what we want in prayer. And we're like, well, then what was the point of that? And so my first statement would be as a, as a mature Christian, I don't want to think of prayer as primarily being about getting what I want from God. I want it to be primarily about relationally having access to God. And that is very different. Imagine if someone treated you in relationship, like, you know, your relationship with them was only about them getting what they want from you. Now, in some families, this is the relationship between a teen and a parent. Some teens, it's so unhealthy that they look at their parent only in terms of what they can get from the parent. No relationship. This is this is insulting. It's harmful. It's hurtful. And it's not a good thing. Um, but rather, if there is primarily, number one, first, there's a relationship between these two people. Secondarily, the teen is dependent on the parent for things. That's secondary, though. That's a healthy relationship. Same thing with me and God. Um, prayer is about accessing God in relationship. So it's in worship. It's in submission. It's in, it's in accessing him to ask for help and stuff. But primarily, it's relational. That's the number one thing. Uh, but there's a lot more to say about this. Let me, um, let me offer some more thoughts that maybe will help. Um, you say, what's the purpose of prayer if God's all-powerful? Okay, well, in a sense, this kind of answers itself. Um, I have, first, a relational purpose of prayer. Secondarily, I want access to God for his help in things. But him being all-powerful is exactly why prayer is so exciting. <laughs> Like God, God has power to help me. This is why I I can pray about anything. This is wonderful. This is an encouragement to pray. God's power is an encouragement to pray. Now you have a second question in there, which is how do we affect anyone or anything with prayer? Um, well, in a sense, I'm not affecting anyone or anything with prayer other than the Lord. I'm, I'm appealing to him. He's the one having the effect on others through prayer. Um, let me add one more in here because I feel like you might be trying to ask questions you're not sure how to word. And there might be another question here, which is, hey, if God, you know, can do it without me praying, if God's powerful enough to do it without me praying, and he knows I'm going to pray anyways, he knows all things and he's got all power, why am I even praying? Um, to this, I usually respond, hey, um, God knows all things, so he knew you would pray, and he knew that you wouldn't pray. And so he really is responding to your prayers, because even in his all-powerfulness, he does react to human prayer. And this is throughout the text of scripture, like you can't believe the Bible without believing that God actually responds to prayer. This is, this is, um, yeah, constantly through the pages of scripture. And so, yeah, um, God knowing all things doesn't mean that everything he knows about has to happen that way, right? It's going to happen that way. That's certainty. We have certainty about it, but it doesn't have to. That's necessity. Certainty doesn't dictate or equate to necessity. That's like a philosophical idea, but basically the idea is this. Prayer is real. Prayer is powerful ultimately because God is powerful and we should be in prayer primarily for relational purposes, secondarily for God interacting with those situations and helping, but not to bring my will, but to bring his will as Jesus taught us how to pray, um, that his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's, that's, that sticks in every prayer. No matter what I'm praying, ultimately I want God's will, not mine. Hope that helps. Um, Lovely Chaos has a question. Says, um, why do you think God created us if He knew it would result in the fall of man, and He would have He would have to save us through such an extreme act of love? Um, I think that this question sort of hints at the answer in the question uh, from Lovely Chaos here. I think God created us, knowing it would result in the fall of man, right? Because it would also result in salvation through this extreme act of love. So God. He could have just created us and then we just enjoy fellowship with him and we're sort of um, forced, I guess, to always obey. That's just a requirement. We always obey. That would not show God's love in, in any extreme way like this. It also wouldn't allow us to make a decision about following God, knowing God, caring about God. It's difficult to have real love when you don't have a choice. Imagine if you could just pick a husband or wife and they had no choice. They have to marry you. They, they just start loving you whether they like it or not. Um, that... That seems to cheapen the relationship. Uh, you know, in movies, when we have these ideas of people making choices or not making choices, it's inevitably they choose 
to make choices over having no free will, even though the um, the ideal life can be created with no free will easily. Um, and you could think of, uh, I haven't seen the movie, but I think Stepford Wives has this kind of concept to it. It's like you, you create a no free will situation to create the ideal situation, but it ends up being miserable and terrible and pointless because there's no free will. So one option is that God makes everyone, loves him, no one has a choice. Another option is that God, um, he makes us, some love him, some don't love him. And those who don't love him, don't choose him. They, they, they just die. They just get judged and they just like go to hell or they're gone for eternity from God. That is also a, like not as good as the current situation because there's no redemption involved. And there's no, there's no element of God showing incredible love for those who, who even despise him. So the cross of Christ gives God the opportunity to show love to his enemies, to demonstrate how incredibly loving and gracious his heart is, to extend forgiveness to anyone who will receive it, anyone who wants to turn in faith and trust in what Jesus has done for them. It gives God the opportunity to come and identify with our suffering. Just think, you know, if, if it wasn't for Jesus, where, how does God identify with my pain? Well, in Jesus, he takes on my pains. He takes on my suffering. So this incredible act of love that God is demonstrating for us, it creates a deeper relationship between you and God, me and God. It allows sinful people who did say no to God to turn around and turn back and say yes to God and be forgiven. I think that um, that the plan of salvation God gave us is beautiful. And when we look at it from the zoomed out perspective of eternity, we see how good it is. When we look at it from the moment right now, oh, it's just about right now. Oh, the world is kind of messed up. Couldn't God have made a better world? Well, I would say God's in the process of making a better world. And the hardship of this world now is part of the process to get us to the better world. Um, David Hahn says, and this is, um, um, I'll need AJ to send me some more questions after this. Um, says, uh, how do you know that you are really saved? I've heard so many Christians on YouTube say different things. Uh, Calvinists versus regular Christians versus others. Thank you for your wisdom. Um, how do you know you're really saved? That's a that's a uh, an important and good question. Um, we get in the scripture a few... Okay, let me start with the foundation of how we get saved. How we get saved. First is this. Um, do you qualify with the how I get saved in the first place? And that is, I heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? I believed in the actual biblical gospel. I didn't believe some other nonsense. I didn't believe that like Buddha chopped down a cherry tree so that I could become a God when I die. Like I don't believe like some weird nonsense. I believed the biblical gospel that, that God, you know, he, he sent his son to die on the cross for my sins and that what I've done wicked was paid for by Jesus. Jesus, he, he died in my place, rose again from the dead and I trust in him. And I also turn from my life of rebellion against God to a life of following God. So repentance and faith. Repentance doesn't mean you never sin again. doesn't mean you're, you're perfect. It's just the idea of turning. I have a moment of turning in faith toward God, from sin toward God. That's the idea. And so if you have that, I believe the gospel, um, then you have that salvation. Now the question is, okay, but do I really believe or do I just think I believe? Am I kidding myself? What's going on here? And for that, you can look at the evidence in your life of salvation. And the Bible gives us a few indicators, a few indicators for this. Um, in Romans 8, it tells us that the, the spirit cries out, Abba, Father. The spirit testifies with our spirit, right? That we're children of God. Um, so there's something when you get saved, there's something spiritual. Doesn't mean it's exactly emotional. I think it, you know, it, your emotions are often affected, but there's something in you that's like, I'm a child of God now. There's something where it's God is working inside of you to show you that you're saved. And I'm not saying that you always feel that 100% of the time. But there's a testimony of the Holy Spirit that's in you to show you that you that you know God. Um, in addition to that, there's other things because the Bible says that sometimes our hearts condemn us. Um, but, you know, God, he's greater than our hearts and he knows all things, First John tells us. So it gives us a few other indicators for us. And these indicators are basically what kind of life have you lived since you received Christ? And if you lived a life that was no different than your pre-Christ life, then that's a bad sign. It's a sign that you may have never received Christ. Because if you truly encounter the living God, he changes your life from the inside out. So the works don't save you. But guess what? If you're saved, it will lead naturally to works. And this is what James chapter 2 talks about when it says that we can be justified. I believe he means in the eyes of man. We can be shown to be genuine in our faith by the works that we do. So when I live out the Christian life, 
it shows me that I have a Christian life. Uh, it doesn't mean sinlessness, but it does mean change. And I can project what my life, and I can do this now. I get saved fairly young, at the age of about 12. But my life really did change. And I really was, I mean, really, really changed. Really was transformed. Um, but even years and years go by, and I can see how different my life is now because I follow Christ than it would be if I didn't. I can see that in myself. And that is some more evidence to support the idea that, yeah, this salvation thing was genuine. So there's a couple things for you to consider um, as you kind of self-evaluate. I would ask you, you could read First John and, uh, and read Romans. Uh, read, read Romans, especially chapter 8, and then read First John and evaluate these things with this question in your mind. Uh, MJ and MT says, what do you think about the idea that it's the worship leader's job to create an atmosphere for people to encounter God? We struggle with this in our church and, uh, and I don't agree. Are we being too rigid? Um, or, or the church doesn't agree. Um, you know, that's an interesting question. I, I've, I've been a worship leader for years and I struggle with being a worship leader. Um, and, and not that it was bad or wrong, but just because I look at the gifts and the particular offices that we see in the New Testament and I just don't see worship leader anywhere in there. And so I've kind of like, I'm like, you know, with, with like an elder, you look at specific things that they do and requirements that they have, but worship leader isn't in anywhere in the New Testament that I see. This doesn't mean it's wrong. It just means I don't have a lot to go on as far as how to do this biblically. So I try to say if this if the scripture doesn't give us like this detailed outline of what we're supposed to do in this regard, then perhaps what we should do is be be sort of open, open to various different ways of of leading people in worship, so long as there seems to be no violation. You know, you know, we're not giving glory to man, we're giving it to God. We have lyrics that are biblically sound and we're focused on Christ and, uh, and the health of the church. Those are some good things for worship leaders to do. Some worship leaders are, maybe they're gifted teachers, so they teach as they lead worship. I feel like that's something, a flavor that enters their, their worship leading. Others, they're gifted encouragers. They have like a gift of encouragement. So as they lead worship, they're very encouraging. And, um, uh, you know, there's very various different gifts that, that the worship leader might have that changes how they lead worship. And I'm open to the variety there. Um, but the idea that they should create an atmosphere for people to encounter God, it I get what people maybe are trying to say, but it does sound a bit vague to me. Um, I don't know how to, I don't, what do you mean by create an atmosphere? I mean, the, you know, okay, the word atmosphere refers to like the actual mix of oxygen and carbon and stuff like that in the air. Uh, carbon dioxide. So that's not what we're talking about. So what are we talking about? Um, atmosphere where people encounter God. If you just mean biblical, you know, uh, God glorifying worship experiences, then I'm down. But if you mean something else, like intense emotional, you know, um, persuasion, if that's the focus, then I have a bit of a, a, a problem with that. So I guess it just depends on what you mean. I'm not here to pull people's arms or try to force them into an emotional reaction. I'm here to create an, an opportunity for them to engage with the Lord in worship. So perhaps because of my views, I'm, a, I'm not as good of a worship leader. <laughs> Maybe I just get up and worship and um, people worship because they want to. And I think that's perfectly fine. Um, Jonathan has a question, says, what are your thoughts on the belief that the church is spiritual Israel, which seems to lead to observing Torah? Is the body of Christ separate from Israel? Um, Jonathan, you know, when when people say the church is spiritual Israel, I don't usually hear them saying that it leads to a, the observance of Torah. Most of them, um, the replacement theology people, would not embrace the observance of the law of Moses. That's Torah. They wouldn't embrace that at all. So that seems to be like a secondary concern. Um, we're grafted in. I guess the real question I have, thinking about the future, God's future plan for Israel, is does does God intend to fulfill the promises He made? to Israel as a nation sometime in the future? And my answer is yes. And I have a video on this online um, that you can check out. But I, I think that, I don't know who you may have encountered who thought this, but this seems to be a rare view to me. And I could be wrong. I think it's a rare view that believing the church is spiritual Israel means we should observe the Torah. Um, and now I do have some videos on the Hebrew Roots Movement, and I would recommend you check those out. And, it, and you guys, because I anticipated questions about the Old Testament law, I put a link in the video description to my two videos on how to understand the Old Testament law. And I recommend you check those out. Those will really open your eyes, especially if you're a new believer or if you're an old believer who you just never have understood this. That will really open your eyes, that two video series. 
Um, let's see, question number nine from Jay. If Jesus, being God, knew he would defeat death, what is the significance of his sacrifice? I understand his resurrection is a pillar to the faith, but how can him being dead for only a few days count? Um, if he, he knew he would defeat death, what is the significance of his sacrifice? I suppose maybe behind that first question, because there's two questions here, is the idea that if Jesus, let me just work through the question with you. It's the idea that if Jesus knew the eventual result of his sacrifice, it was less of a sacrifice. And I'd like to hear a case for that. Um, in fact, I would say if he didn't know if it would help or not, it would almost seem like foolishness to do it. Um, yeah, I mean, let's say I, I say, hey, if you if you give your, your kidney for a transplant, you know, you might help this person, you might save their life. It's like 50-50, we have no idea. Um, then the doctor comes and you go, okay, I'll do it. Now that's a sacrifice. I agree that's a sacrifice. But let's say that then the doctor comes back to you and says, hey, we ran some tests. It's not 50-50. It's 100%. If you give your kidney, you will totally save that person. Is it now not a sacrifice because he knows it'll work? Uh, no, that doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, I'm not sure if, if I follow that logic. The second question is, I understand his resurrection is a pillar of the faith, but how can him being dead for only a few days count? Um... Well, it's not the length of time that Jesus was dead that saves us, according to scripture. It was the fact that he died. So the penalty for sin is death, and Jesus endured death for us. In fact, he had to come in human form. He came, God came in human form because that was how he could be able to die for us. And so, yeah, he he paid for our uh, our sin by paying the penalty for our sin. He died in our place. It's the death itself, not the not the length of how long he's dead. You know, he saves us from death. So if the consequence of, of, of sin is death, then Jesus paid that consequence. Yeah. Now, there's a lot more to this. And I will say, guys, I am going to be doing, uh, coming up real soon here, I'm going to do some videos on penal substitutionary atonement, which is the theory about you know, how is it that Jesus' sacrifice actually saves us? And I'll field some more questions on this topic then. So stay tuned. That'll be coming in, you know, future weeks here. Uh, Donna Lance says, not sure exactly what is meant by sharing the gospel. How do we share the gospel? What part of the gospel do we include? Thank you. Oh, that's a great question. Um, I think that uh, what we can share when we share the gospel is we, we can first assess where the person is at. So if the person is like completely without understanding about anything biblical, um, if they don't even know God exists, then you got to start with God exists. You know, so you tell them, hey, God exists. God loves you. God created all this world. He desires relationship with you. You know, that would be a starting point. But then you have to tell them, you know, let's say they already understand God exists. Then you can, then you can go to the, the, the bad news, the bad news, which is human sin. Humans have sinned against God. We've sinned against God and we, we, we know we have. I mean, in reality, the vast majority of us would admit we're sinners. We just often try to pretend that we're not as bad as, as we really are. So some questions help bring this out. And you're like, well, have you told lies? Have you ever uh, told a lie? How many lies have you told? And most people will say countless, countless lies. Okay, well, that's kind of a big deal, isn't it? Um, oh, everybody does it. Well, everybody doing it doesn't make it better. It just makes it worse. Everybody's doing it. Um, Jesus said, if you if you look with lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. Or if you hate without a cause, you've committed murder in your heart. And most people would say they have done this, would admit to to uh, having done it. Theft, you know, or taking God's name in vain or various things. It's like walking through the Ten Commandments to show people that they've sinned. So you talk about God, his existence, right? Human sin and how God is a good judge and he will punish our sin. I'll stand before him one day to deal with this sin, which leads us to the solution, which is Jesus. So you talk about Jesus. Jesus came. God sent his son to die on the cross for us, right? Because he's going to suffer the penalty for what we did. And then he rose from the dead on the third day. And if you put your faith and trust in him, you receive the benefits of his sacrifice for you. So you believe in him, this God who loves you and wants to restore you to himself, to forgive your sin. So those are elements of the gospel. God's existence, human sin, the, the person of Jesus, who he is and what he did on the, cro the cross and the resurrection of Christ. And you want to share these elements and then call the person to have faith and trust in Jesus, which means repenting of sin and believing. Um, those are those are the elements. And depending on who you're talking to, you may focus on certain elements more than others. 
Uh, James uh, Georgiou says, I'm writing a paper on limited atonement for class. Any ideas on books to get or passages to cover? Uh, anything to help would help. Um, yeah, uh, limited atonement. Um, you want to look into David Allen. He has two books on the one called, I think it's just called The Atonement. And another one that has a similar title, um, but it's about a historical analysis of, um, of the atonement. You know, surveying different church writings over the centuries. Um, so two books by David Allen on the atonement that you might look into. Those would be something I think that we, I would recommend. Let's see. Uh, Piano Lab has a question. Any advice on how to put sin to death? Any advice on how to put sin to death? Um, so, yeah, there's actually, there's an interesting verse in Romans um, that I'll, I'll share with you. And you may not like it, <laughs> but it's what we need to hear. And it is, um, oh, hold on. There we go. Romans 6. 11, it says, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now this, this battle against sin is the daily battle and struggle that every believer goes through. You will every day be tempted to sin. Every day you're going to be tempted to sin. And every day you have to, you have to like die. It feels like death to deny the sinful nature, what the Bible calls the flesh that you might instead walk in the spirit Right? And follow the leading of the Spirit in your life to be changed, to be transformed. Love, joy, patience, peace, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. Like these things that the Holy Spirit's working in your life. You walk in that and you don't walk in sin. And so um, the advice on how to do this is that. Is you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. I think this is actually key to our victory over sin. Is that we in our head, we do the mental work of faith to believe that we're dead to this sin. Um, let me read Romans 6 to you in context so you can soak this up a little bit more. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So this is starting with the concept of your salvation. You're supposed to go, hey man, I'm dead with Christ that I might be alive with Christ. And it's that old life of sin that I'm dead to that I might walk in the new life of loving God with all of my life. Verse 5 goes on, for if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. This is key. This is something I encourage you to read over and over again. You're struggling with sin. Our old self was crucified with him. Like in Galatians, he says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Quote that verse to yourself when you are tempted, when you want to put sin to death. And he, and he goes on, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. So this concept of death, you get this, you know, if you're following, you're tracking with Romans. It's death is separation. In fact, that's a consistent theme. Whenever death is brought up in scripture, there's always some kind of separation that happens there. You being separated from the life of sin, that's something that happens because of the cross. So that when you're tempted, you remember the cross. I can resist this sin. I can turn from this sin because I've died to sin through Jesus Christ. I've been set free. That's the key. Death no longer has dominion over you and death and sin are here connected. So consider yourselves or reckon yourselves as the New King James says, reckon yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. It's a mentality you have to have towards sin. Therefore, uh, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present and here, this is the application. Don't present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. Now, when you're tempted to sin, even in some small, minor area, just letting anger control you a little bit in a negative, sinful fashion, letting carnality and selfishness, uh, laziness, any of these things that when they are temp you're tempted to be controlled by these things and you give into them a little bit, 
you are presenting your members, that is your body, you're presenting your body as an instrument for unrighteousness, right? I don't want to do that. Instead, present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will, no, will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. So here is my encouragement with this in mind. Um, if you die to sin the first at the first temptation, you will find victory over sin is fairly easy. If you play with sin, if you present your members to sin and you're like, I'll just compromise a little bit. I'll just sin a little bit here. I'll just make space for the flesh a little bit over here in my life. You will find your battle with sin is insanely difficult. But if you draw the line at the beginning, the very moment the flesh begins to tempt you, you, you immediately say, I won't even take one tiny little step in that direction. You will find your battle against sin is much, much easier. Because, um, yeah, when you're dead to sin, you're just, you just don't step in that way. Um, I hope that helps. All right, hold on. I uh, lost my spot here just a moment. That was from Piano Lab. All right, um, from Captain Bloodfire says, should all Christians follow the Old Testament law considering Jesus didn't come to change the law? Um, yeah, so he didn't come to change the law. And you're right, that's a good point. Jesus did not come to change the law. But then, you know, why aren't we all doing the law? And I would, I would say there's a few specific reasons here. For one, um, Jesus, you know, he if he didn't change the law, then we have to recognize the law was never commanded to all the, all people in the world. It was commanded to the Jews and, and hear me out here, to the Gentiles who were living inside of national Israel at the time. But God never extended the command of the Old Testament law outside the borders of Israel into any other locations where all the world was supposed to obey it. He specifically says in the Old Testament that no other nation has ever had a set of laws like this and that it's for Israel. And it identifies them as God's sort of chosen, you know, nation you know, who he's going to bring the messiah through so if jesus simply didn't change the law well then i would think okay well only jews are supposed to obey the old testament law that would be the unchanged law right there um, however or or gentiles living within israel where you, you you obey the laws of any nation you live in by the way that's the way it works they're national laws you obey them when you live in that nation um, but there's more information than this this is just one piece another piece is this while jesus didn't come to change the law he did come to fulfill the law and you have to ask yourself uh, he didn't change it, but he did fulfill it. Well, what does that mean that he fulfilled it? What happens when the law is fulfilled? And for that, we have the answer throughout the New Testament. And I have some videos on this online. Maybe the mods can put some of my, my Hebrew Roots videos I've put up in there in the live chat. Um, but if you look up online, like, um, uh, you know, Mike Winger, Hebrew Roots, you'll, you'll see a few videos in particular about changing the law. What does this mean? The short version is this, is that the law had a purpose to... Uh, reveal the sinfulness of man and lead us to Christ. But now we no longer walk under the letter. Even the Jews no longer have to walk under the letter of the law. They walk in the guiding and the fullness of the Holy Spirit, which is different, has some similarities, but is, is a different thing. So I see the law. I learn from the law. I grow from the law. But the New Testament specifically says we're not under the law. And that's something that we, uh, we have to acknowledge if we're going to listen to Jesus. Um, Al, uh, Alejandro uh, Viramantes says, do you have to speak tongues to be saved? And the answer is no, you do not. And I know some people have been taught this. Um, and, they, and their whole case for the idea that you have to speak tongues to be saved comes from the idea that several times in the New Testament, when someone is filled with the Spirit, they speak in tongues as like an immediate thing. So we get this in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit comes. They speak in tongues. Uh, when Peter goes to Cornelius and, and the Holy Spirit uh, falls upon them, they speak in tongues. But, but it doesn't happen every time. It does not happen every time. And therefore, it doesn't have to happen every time. So we don't have any text of scripture that says you have to speak in tongues to prove you're saved. And we don't even have every example of a person getting saved always speaking in tongues. So there's just no reason to say this. And people who do say it, oh man, they cause heartache and hurt and pain. Because as 1 Corinthians says, uh, not all people speak in tongues, right? And he asks a rhetorical question in 1 Corinthians. Do all speak in tongues? Do all prophesy? Do all? No, all don't do this. Now, if all don't do it according to 1 Corinthians, then he means all Christians don't do it. Then we shouldn't be judging people. Calling them not saved? Ooh, it hurts. I heard this when I was a teenager. And it freaked me out just to hear someone say, if you don't speak in tongues, you, you haven't been saved. And, um, and man, let the word of God deliver you from this bondage of, a, of an idea. Yeah. 
All right, Miss T says, "What? Where is the best place for teens who are new believers to start in the Bible? Um, uh, the Gospels. You want to start with Jesus. You're a new believer in Jesus. You want to start with Jesus. Um, absolutely, start with the Lord Jesus Christ. Start with the Gospels. So you can start with. Uh, many people recommend John. They say John is really good um, because uh, it was written so that you might believe. Um, but I would say start with any of the any of the four Gospels and then read then read Acts and then read through the New Testament and then go back and read the Old Testament. Um, why should you start in the New Testament? Because it's it's the revelation, the full revelation of the story that's been told slowly and hidden. Here, let me give you an example. The Old Testament, it's said that the gospel message of Jesus was hidden, in, mysteriously hidden, covered and you know, put in pictures and types, and it was it was to be discovered later. So in the Old Testament, it's mysterious. In the New Testament, it's clear. Now, if you have the kind of self-control to read from Genesis to Revelation without stopping, and you're not going to quit when you hit the first genealogy of the Bible in Genesis 5, then I say go ahead and start with the Old Testament and just ravenously dig in and read the Word, soak it up and learn it and grow. When you hit the New Testament, you'll get all these light bulb moments. And the Old Testament stuff you read will suddenly go boom, 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 boom. And you'll go, I get it, I get it, it makes sense now. I think most people are not this self-controlled. So I recommend start with the New Testament, learn who Jesus is, learn about the early church, learn in the epistles, the instructions to new Christians. I mean, this is like, to, this is exactly what you need as a new Christian. Jesus, the early church, and instructions to new Christians, that's in the epistles. And then you go back and you read the Old Testament with, with uh, the clarity of Christ already. That would be my recommendation. Um, so Trenton Willis says, is the doctrine of soul sleep biblical? Um, soul sleep, for anybody who doesn't know, as I understand it, is the doctrine that when somebody, um, when someone dies, they basically have no awareness of anything until they're resurrected, until some future time when, when God restores us uh, in the resurrection. I don't think this is biblical. I think that there's uh, several like arguments you can run against soul sleep. It is not it is not a po the popular view in my mind in, in Christianity, uh, nor has it been. As far as I know, it's never been a real popular view in Christianity. It's always been kind of more of a fringe perspective. Um, so yeah, I don't think it's um, biblical soul sleep. I think the visions, the vision of what happens in Revelation shows people aware and, you know, with the, with the Lord in heaven, even though they don't have bodies yet, they don't have their new bodies yet. Uh, Paul speaks of how he'd rather go and be with Christ than stick around in this world and help people. He didn't just say he'd rather go sleep and wait on Christ. He said he'd rather be with Christ. And that that seems to, you know, imply that. Um, you know, Jesus' parable, or it's not a parable actually, his story of Lazarus and the rich man indicates that there was conscious awareness of, of events going on amongst the dead, the deceased, who did not yet have bodies. So there's a few, off the top of my head, there's a few, uh, you know, reasons to support that soul sleep is not a thing. Um, yeah, maybe I'll do a video on it one of these days and tackle re real objections to that. Yeshua, Lord of all, says, do you believe in the uh, that seminary is needful to be a minister of God's word? No, I don't think it's needful to be a minister of God's word. I think faithful, uh, thoughtful study of the scriptures is needful to be a minister of God's word. Um, seminary is one way to expose yourself to a lot of thoughtful people, you know, and sometimes bad people, sometimes good people. Some seminaries um, are lame and some are good. And may God give you wisdom if you decide to go go to one. But I don't think it's required, even though I know some denominations require it. My own denomination, or you know, Calvary Chapel wouldn't consider themselves a denomination. We're a church group. But at any rate, we don't require seminary for someone to be a pastor. Um, we require that we, we know them and we see a calling on their life and we affirm it in the church. So it's very organic. Um, however, I frequently um, cringe at the lack of study and prep that I see amongst, you know, pastors for their own time in the word. So faithful study of the scripture is required if you're going to be a minister of God's word. And um, yeah, but seminary is optional. Jonathan says, is the body of Christ separate from Israel? Uh, no, um, Ephesians, uh, the, I mean, where the body of Christ um, is joined with Israel in Christ. Those who are your true Israel in Christ. It doesn't mean I replace Israel, but that middle wall of separation Ephesians talks about has been taken down so that in Christ, there's no Jew or Gentile. There's no Jew or Gentile. It says in scripture, and there's no Jew, there's no Gentile, man. We are one in Christ so that I'm not separated from Israel in Christ. But that doesn't mean 
that there isn't such a thing in the real world as a nation called Israel that God has made promises about nationally. That so I would not say I would say those things are not the same thing. So yeah, uh, in Christ it doesn't mean we're all Jewish. That's that's a mistake that some people make. They think oh in Christ it's all Jew, no Gentile. No, that's not. It says there's no Jew or Gentile. It's irrelevant. In Christ, it's irrelevant. He, the obstacle of the law, the obstacle, the separation that, that occurs between the Jewish people and the Gentile people because of God's law, and he wanted them separate, special, unique people, that is done away with because in Christ we're one and there's no middle wall of separation. That's, the, that's a fancy term used in the book of Ephesians to say, yeah, we're not separate. Jason Vasquez says, if the New Testament was implemented when Jesus died and rose again, is it fair to say um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is considered Old Testament since Jesus had not died yet? Thanks. Um, well, n no, I, I mean, you know, Jesus inaugurated the New Covenant, and that's what I think you mean by New Testament. So when we say that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John are part of the New Testament, we don't mean they occur... Um, you know, the, the new covenant occurred before they, the events in those books occurred. We're not really saying that. This is two very different statements. Jesus inaugurated the covenant. He's the one who says, here's the covenant. The idea is God's going to save you from your sins by the, by the sacrifice of Christ. You just believe and trust in him and you will be washed clean. He will renew and restore you, give you his Holy Spirit. This is all part of the new covenant. Okay, but we call them the New Testament this, the, these, these books written in the first century inspired by God because they're all um, in reflection on the new covenant. They're all written in a, really after Jesus did inaugurate the new covenant in actual history. So we call them the New Testament, New Covenant uh, books for that reason. I hope that helps. I feel like I got a little confused there. Uh, Justin Hilton said, does Lucifer's fall and ours mean that God made a mistake or does it mean he planned on, on sin and the fall uh, happening? Um, well, we should probably go to the cat cam just in case, just in case it's needed. Uh, yes, there's the cat cam. Um, okay, sorry, this is this is Moxie again. Anyways, uh, does Lucifer's fall uh, and ours mean that God made a mistake? I would say uh, no. Um, it would only mean that God made a mistake if God didn't know it was going to happen, right? And didn't plan on it happening. But in Scripture, we find out that God actually was planning the whole history of mankind, including the future, things that haven't happened yet, he was planning that from before he created the world. This is why scripture says that Jesus is the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. Right? And that, and that there was something that God was purposing in himself, right, from before the world was. God had a purpose or a plan. This is, I'm quoting scripture here, purposing in himself from before the world was. He had a plan for the salvation of mankind from before the world was. Now that would obviously include the fall of mankind. If he planned our salvation, he certainly had a plan for our fall. Um, so yeah, not a mistake. It was rather God um, using all things for good. Like Romans 8.28 says, God works all things together for good. Lucas Fowler says, I've been a Christian for all my life, but never showed it. I recently rediscovered my faith. And do you have any tips for someone looking into theology and researching topics in the Bible? Um, well, if you're just beginning to do this, um, and obviously I'm going to recommend my own video content. Let's say I've got lots and hundreds of videos that are free that are out there. Um, I think, um, um, gotquestions.org is a great website for answering random questions you might have as you're thinking about things. I think they're a pretty great site. I don't agree with every single, every single thing they say, but I think they're a very good resource for you. Quick answers to, to quick questions. That would be one place that you might consider researching for topics in the Bible. Uh, Dennis K says, uh, is it okay to listen to music that's not classified as Christian, but has no bad words or any profanity? Now, I've gone a little back and forth on this in, in my years. Uh, is music okay if it's secular music, non-Christian music? Well, I used to think no. I used to think no, it's not okay. Um, and I, I couldn't exactly say why. I just thought it wasn't okay. If you ask me like, show me where the sin is in this, I would have actually had a hard time expressing where the sin was in it because it was more of a gut thing than it was a theological thing or a principle I was getting from scripture. I get that I'm not supposed to be like the world, um, you know, but I, I couldn't really outline it well. Well, the more I've thought about it, here's my current view, is that um, the question isn't whether your music is overtly Christian or not overtly Christian. The question is 
what content is in your music is it um helpful is it harmful right first corinthians says all things are lawful for me but not all things are helpful okay does it help or harm um, is it proclaiming good things or even neutral truths la 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 love is great la 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 love is nice like maybe not written by a christian but i don't see a problem with that song um, you know, if someone sings a song about how he's going to sleep with lots of different women, I'm going to sleep with this girl, I'll sleep with that girl, I'm sleeping with tons of different girls, ooh, I found a really young teenager, ooh, you know what I mean with her, and I'm going to sleep with her too. This is obviously a wicked, evil song, it has nothing to do with the fact that it's not Christian, it's just ungodly. So I guess the question I have with my music is, is it godly or ungodly? And then, for me, that's easy. If it's ungodly, don't listen to it. If it's godly, go ahead. If it's neutral, then go ahead. It's like, can I buy a cheeseburger from someone who's not a Christian? Well, why can't I listen to their music? I don't, I don't really see a problem with that. But I do think we should evaluate our music and see if it's good or not. And for some who think, I don't really care if the lyrics are bad. I know it's talking about blaspheming God and it's talking about doing drugs and doing evil things. And But I just like the beat. Um, I would just say, um, I personally don't feel comfortable with that perspective. I'm not going to sit there and beat the guy over the head all day long about it. I don't understand that. I think he's probably wrong. Um, but ultimately that's between him and God and I'm not going to, I'm not going to separate in fellowship with somebody because of the music they listen to. So I hope that helps. Captain Bloodfire says, uh, should we go to church at all if we've been watching Bart Ehrman videos and not sure? Um, yes, absolutely. You should go to church. Uh, Captain Bloodfire, allow me to tell you, man, Bart Ehrman, this guy freaks people out, but he is and I, I have to say this, I can say this with a straight face. He is utterly deceptive. He often gets you to believe things that he doesn't believe because of the way he turns his phrases. It's so bad that um, in William Lane Craig, when he debated Bart Ehrman, he, he said there was good Bart and bad Bart because good Bart is when Bart's writing scholarly stuff and his scholarly stuff, it's respectable and it's more like in line with actually tracking with evidence and all this. But his popular level stuff, which is probably the stuff you've experienced and you've seen, is very deceptive. It gets you to believe things that simply aren't true. And um, he's doing it in a sense, maybe to sell books or maybe because he, f well, who knows what his motivation is. The point is, it's it's just deceptive. When, when people realize where he was misrepresenting the evidence, they usually stop worrying about what Bart Ehrman says. That's my experience. So yeah, should you go to church? Absolutely. Um, you, should, you should look up Dan Wallace, who's done a lot of work refuting Bart Ehrman stuff. You should look up... Um, um, he has a, Bart Ehrman has a book, pop level book called How Jesus Became God. Um, well, there's a book written just to refute Bart Ehrman's book called How God Became Jesus. And it is written by scholars who've done their homework and you should definitely check it out. I looked at Ehrman's book, um, um, what was it, uh, about the uh, uh, lost Christianities. And what was interesting about this book is that he he just ignores the first century. His His, his idea is that Christianity had all these various things and there was basically other versions of Christians that had totally different beliefs, unchristian beliefs, and they were just as legitimately Christian as the Christian ones. And we only believe what we believe today because one group, one of the weird Christian groups happened to win and then they burned the stuff from the other people and now, you know, your Christianity was made up by by people other than Jesus, other than the apostles. That's the idea. He, he, in the book, he just ignores the first century. He ignores literally the beginning of Christianity, the first hundred years of the church, and the, the, the documents of the New Testament in any significant fashion, any fair treatment of them. It's just deceptive. It's just factually deceptive. Um, so anyway, yeah, I feel, I feel upset about it because he's deceiving people, like yourself perhaps. Uh, so yeah, I would not consider him in any way, shape, or form a good resource. You should still go to church. If you're doubting, why would you think it'll get better by not being in fellowship with other believers? Um, definitely go to church, man. Be plugged in. To a new believer out there, you need to be in church, man. You need to be part of a fellowship. And, and just attending services isn't the same as being part of a church because churches are an organic thing. We're a body of Christ. If you don't connect relationally with real human beings who are Christians on a regular basis with a sense of the spiritual connection that there is between Christians then you're not actually in fellowship. But you need to be in fellowship. It's so healthy for you. It's so good for you. Hebrews tells us not to forsake gathering together as believers. It, it commands us, don't, don't. Hebrews 10, 25, I think it is. Don't stop gathering together as believers. It's really important for you. You need it in your life. Um, 
Okay, so I hope that that helped. Um, let's see, Jill says, do 12-step programs reconcile with being a Christian? I'm having trouble with this, and as I'm new, a new Christian and a longtime member of a 12-step program, I, I think there's at least some of the steps that reconcile just fine with being a Christian. Um, I think the, one of the first steps in a 12-step program is find your higher power. Well, I think if you're finding the true God of all creation, then that's a fantastic step. But if you fabricate up some fake personalized God of your own imagination or some false religion, that's a bad step. So it just depends. I say just evaluate the steps themselves. Don't feel like you have to accept or reject the whole program. Evaluate each step as a Christian. Apply it as a Christian and consider it in that context. Um, yeah, I, I'd offer you more more you know thoughts there, but I'm not that familiar with 12-step programs that I want to um, act like I can tell you everything about them. Um, all right, we're, we're, we're just running out of time. I'm looking at how many questions there are. I'll go a little bit longer, guys, because I'm going to try to speed here, speed around. I'm going to try and speed through your questions because I want to answer your questions. I appreciate you being here. And I hope that your question is a question someone else online is also asking and that when they hear the answer, it will bless them too. So um, here's a question. Why is there so many denominations and only one true God? Um, well, uh, this is from David Falk. My, my short answer is this. A lot of denominations don't actually disagree as much as people think they do. Uh, that's that's one one big point. We're actually in agreement in so many areas with different denominations, and we disagree on separate secondary issues, but we agree on the core of Christianity. Also, denominations happen because over time churches move away from God. So, like the uh, I have a friend who's a United Methodist pastor. Well, the United Methodist Church started actually super strong and biblical, and over the years they've radically changed. So that now many are leaving the denomination and they're joining another or starting their own denomination which goes back to biblical truth. So new denominations sometimes result from an old denomination departing from biblical truth and then people leaving them and saying, no, 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 man, we're going to get back to our roots. And so there's a new denomination that's just getting back to the roots of Christianity. Uh, that can happen. Um, so yeah, they don't often don't disagree as much as people think. Second, um, people get weird and there's always people going back to the Bible, going back to Christianity, going back uh, to the beginning. <clears throat> yeah, but a lot of these denominations look really similar at their beginning, and then they get all liberal and weird at the end, and then people restart. Randy Butternubs says, when I die, um, we will, will we go to heaven? When we die, will we go to heaven, or are we all dead until Jesus comes back? This is like that soul sleep question. I believe that when we die, we are in the very presence of God immediately we're in his presence and we just wait there until the future time comes when he gives us our resurrected bodies when Jesus uh, is returning. Robert Butcher says, some Christians that claim to not believe in sinless perfection say, if we can go without sinning for minutes or hours, we can go without sinning for days, weeks, or months. Is this biblical? Um, uh, just show me it in the Bible. Is Where's the Bible passage that says Christians can go without sinning for months that this is like a state that we arrive at where we just cease sinning I'll, I'll, here's what i think is biblical in any one temptation situation you, you are not required to sin you can say no to sin that's a biblical truth and you could try to extrapolate that out and say well then you could you could always say no constantly and theoretically you can't there's more though another point is this we will always be tempted up until the moment of our death, we will face temptation. So while you could say no, you will still be tempted in the future. You'll always be tempted. You'll always be tempted. Third point. Third point. Um, so, um, yeah, you can say no, but you'll always be tempted. And third point is this. There isn't in the scriptures some state where Christians reach where they stop having to deal with temptation for sin. Because I don't ever stop dealing with sin, how can I predict that I'll never do it again? So I... I say we should be growing in Christ, but we should we should not have this sinless perfection thing. It seems like we're adding to the text. Uh, John Jay says, "Do I have to be do I have to be baptized when I decide to be a Christian?" Um, you have to be baptized, yes, to obey Jesus. You want to follow Jesus? You you, you do what He says. You got to go be, get baptized. Do you have to be baptized to be saved? No. You could be saved and have this area of your life where you have not obeyed Jesus because we're not saved by our perfect obedience. We're saved by our perfect Savior, right? I'm not saved by being sinless. I'm, I'm saved by Jesus and his sinlessness. So you can be saved, but if you're going to follow Christ, 
John, you ought to be baptized. You ought to go and publicly show your faith and trust in Christ and engage in that beautiful, wonderful thing God has given us. If there's any part of you, anyone watching, that's resisting being baptized, I dare say there's something you're not thinking clearly about. And you, you just got to go do it for the Lord and enjoy it and rejoice in it and celebrate it. Invite people to come see it so they can see your proclamation of faith. Um, Papyrus says, how much do you think that aesthetics affects ethics? Do you think that wearing worn out, torn, ragged clothing is a means for the culture of death and destruction? Uh, I really don't know. Um, I guess in some sense, you know, when we take poor care of ourselves, it says something about it, like maybe lessens our estimation of human value. That is, that is quite possible. I don't necessarily know that, that torn jeans does that though. Um, it could just be a style thing. It may not be that it's, you're saying that you're worth less. So I don't know if I would go there with it. Just my thoughts. Uh, Slavic Stritz says, if you struggle with faith and read and pray, still struggle with doubt and it's a difficult, if it's, and it's difficult to fight, what can you do? I have a teaching online, Slavic Striz, um, which is called uh, Dealing with Doubt. And I please encourage you, Google Dealing with Doubt, Mike Winger, or look it up on YouTube, and you will find this teaching. And I go into great detail about that. Um, you, It's okay for you to deal with doubt and struggle with doubt. And you can honor God in your life, even though you might doubt every single day. You can make decisions that will honor him, and, and it will be glorifying to Christ. And it's like an act of worship to the Lord. So yes, press on, trust in the Lord, choose trust, even though you may struggle with doubt. And please watch that that video. Okay, a few more, because I just I, I don't want to miss the chance to answer your guys' questions on this topic. Uh, Justin Hilton says, is lust as simple as looking at a woman and thinking, wow, nice? Or is it its original meaning something much more like, I need to sleep with her, I want to make her mine? Um, the original meaning of the word lust is desire, is strong desire. That That's just the meaning right there. I'm just really desiring something. So if I can objectively look at a woman and say, she's beautiful, that there's nothing sinful about that. There's nothing sinful about that. The lust is the desire in my heart. That's not even in a word. It's the desire. I I want her. That, I, I, I feel a pull toward... I don't just want to see her. I want to stare at her. There's something desiring, desirable. I'm desiring her. That's where lust is coming in. And so, um, in fact, you're, you're sort of free from this issue of lust. If you if you look and you acknowledge that someone, you see someone's beautiful, but you feel no pull of desire that's there. Now, that being said, lust can be a temptation before it's a sin. And so I can be tempted with lust before I yield my heart to it. Now, once I yield my heart and my mind to it, now it becomes a sin. But going, oh, okay, there's a beautiful woman or something, and I'm, then it's like, okay, now fine, now look, now look away, <laughs> now move on, now don't focus on this thing, and don't feed that desire that's in the flesh of man, um, so that you could you could be tempted without sinning in this. You just can't feed it, you can't give it, let it lead to fantasizing, you can't let it sit in your heart, and you can't let it lead to any actions, a continued stare, a second, third look, um, those types of things are uh, where I'm giving in, I'm yielding my members to sin at that point. Um, Child of God says, hi, Mike, what do you think of 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 12 on women in the church? Um, you know, I get asked this question all the time and I'm just going to say, guys, I'm going to, I'm not going to answer this question until I answer it in full detail one of these days in the future. I'm so sorry. Please look up some other resources. Just, just let, I won't be your source on this one until I feel I can answer it in a really robust and thoughtful way about uh, women in the church and all those details. I have my opinions. I'm a conservative. I believe in... It, that there are different roles for men and women in the church. And they're outlined. I don't think it's oppressive. These are my views, right? However, I want to bring a solid teaching on the topic that addresses the controversial issues of the day, and I haven't done it yet. So I'm going to move forward. Um, uh, let's see. All right, there are more questions. I think I'm, I think I'm going to call it for tonight, though. Um, real quick, zooming through some of these. Um, is Halloween Satan's holiday? Um, well... It depends on what you mean. I have a teaching on the topic of Halloween. It's like a pastor's perspective on Halloween or something like that. Anyway, if you just Google Mike Winger Halloween, it should pop up. And it's like a full live stream I did on the topic of Halloween. I encourage you to check it out. Um, and uh, when should you stop asking for something in prayer and start trying to change what you want um, to align with the apparent answer of no? I say the Lord may lead you in that and guide you in that. It's okay to continue seeking the Lord. But if you seem seems to be the Holy Spirit's teaching you to let go of something, 
then perhaps you should. Uh, I, I would I would try to yield to the leading of the Holy Spirit and all that. Um, you guys, there's tons more questions. If you loved this, um, you know what? I hate to say this, but like the video, share the video, comment in the video, and say, do this again. Do a new believer Q&A again. Um, the next time I do a q and it'll probably be a different topic unless you're like, no, 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 this, this, this. Um, and let me know, what topic do you think I should do a Q&A on? What focused issue should I do it on? Now, if you guys love this ministry, um, you can support it. I actually live off of your guys' support now. This is how this ministry takes place now. And um, I would appreciate you considering that if you have it in your finances and it's on your heart to do so, there's a link in the description or you can go to BibleThinker.org and you can uh, donate through that. And it's um, there's accountability in it. It's not just going to my pocket. Uh, but it's it's creating the ability for this ministry to happen and grow. And so thank you guys so much. I'll see you next week. And we'll be doing real soon stuff on penal substitution. And I'll be at the, oh, uh, the Unbelievable Conference this weekend. Maybe I'll see you there. That's happening in Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. And if you want to look it up online, just look up Unbelievable Conference LA. And you should find it there. If you guys are going to be there, come and say hi to me. Love to shake your hand and uh, see your face. Because you see my face all the time. So why not? All right. Lord bless you. Have a great day.